Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sanjukta Poddar, the host of the channel. I'm a postdoctoral teaching fellow in the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations and the Department of Race, Diaspora, and Indigeneity at the University of Chicago. Today, we have with us Vandana Sunalkar and Anupama Rao. And we'll discuss their work, Memoirs of a Dalit Communist, The Many Worlds of R.B. Morey. Vandana Sunalka taught economics with a focus on feminism, caste, and development at Dr. Baba Saheb Ambedkar Maratwada University in Aurangabad and the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Bombay. She retired in 2017. Since then, she has been working as an independent researcher, writer, and translator. Apart from the text that we are discussing today, she has also translated We Also Made History, which examines the role of women in the Ambedkar movement. Her rather recent publication is a first-person narrative titled Why I'm Not a Hindu Woman, A Personal Story. At present, she is a member of the Executive Council of the Indian Association for Women's Studies and working as the editor of the association's newsletter. Anupama Rao teaches history at Barnard College and, the, and at the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies at Columbia University, New York. She has a wide range of research and teaching interests, gender and sexuality studies, caste and race, historical anthropology, social theory, comparative urbanism, and human rights. In 2009, she published The Caste Question, Dalits and Politics of Modern India. Currently, she's working on a book about the political thought of Indian social reformer and political leader, P.R. Ambedkar, titled Ambedkar in America, as well as a project on Dalit Bombay, which explores the relationship between caste, political culture, and everyday life in colonial and post-colonial Bombay. She's the editor of Memoirs of a Dalit Communist, the book that we are discussing today. 
Anupama and Vandana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, you Sanjuta. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start our conversation. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. And since this is an intensely collaborative work, I'm curious to learn about how you met each other and how you were drawn to R.B. More's writings. Okay. Um, should I go ahead, Anupama? Yep. Uh, we met when um, Anupama was doing research for her PhD thesis and was visiting Maharashtra. Uh, I, we were living, I was living in Aurangabad at the time and uh, we were really introduced by an old friend, a friend who has recently passed away, Lee Schlesinger, uh, who thought that it would be a good idea for Anupama to come and meet me and my husband, Tulsi. And as some of her uh, field work would be in the Maratwada region of which Aurangabad is the main city. And that just started a friendship. Um, it was some years later that we came to this R.B. More, but... Uh, Anu Pama will say something more about this. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, no, I think you know there are there are many passings and introductions and openings that frame how one came to this text. Uh, Vandana has mentioned Lee Schlesinger, who um, studied many years ago at the University of Chicago um, and, and uh, did a PhD in anthropology, but also Vandana's uh, partner, Tulshi Parab, who uh, was a kind of extraordinary resource uh, with a very wide range of interests and ways of seeing that were, I think, both unique and um, very significant. He had a deep sense of uh, Bombay in the 60s and the 70s, um, having sort of grown up and been a part of many of the uh, literary movements of the time, had uh, been a, an activist in rural um, Maharashtra in Dhule, and himself was a was a really profound poet, um, you know, uh, quite an extraordinary poet, uh, who inhabited, you know, in many ways the uh, worlds of um, urban Bombay, of Maharashtra, and its political and intellectual history, but also had very wide ranging sort of global interests and connections uh, uh, yes. in terms of imaginative world. So that was the, the opening, as it were, for how we became acquainted. And we've done um, other things together uh, and have maintained a, a longstanding connection and collaboration. But in terms of coming to uh, More's book, I think it's worth mentioning that when I was working on my book, uh, The Cast Question, I encountered uh, the biography and autobiography of uh, Arbi More, which had been published in Marathi. Uh, and also came to know uh, Arbi More's grandson, Subodh More, who is a common friend for both Vandana and I. And uh, encountering that book, um, what I began to, to see, because my own book had moved away from a kind of history of social movements uh, within which the Ambedkarite movement had been situated, to really think through a way of imploding social theory and social thought to bring them together in many ways, 
Mori's um, own um, work was um, a kind of startling reminder of the life worlds of caste, of caste labor, of uh, you know Ambedkarite politics in its time, and also its relationship to urban radicalism, uh, and one that you know I felt really needed to find um, a broader global audience. Uh, mm -hmm. That. This was a text that, you know, opened up questions of intellectual histories from below. It asked about the, you know, very complex histories of anti-caste thought, but it also suggested the world around and exceeding Ambedkar. So it allowed us to both sort of think about Ambedkar's significance mm -hmm. for caste and thinking, but it also suggested that there was a much more complex heterodox world around him that we knew very little about. So this is the kind of entry into the uh, text and its translation, which uh, took us some time um, to really work through. Right, right. That's really fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm going to kind of dive yes. into some of those terms that you mentioned, especially life worlds. But, uh, you know, I, I want to go slowly for our listeners um, so one of the questions, I'm curious, how long uh, did this collaboration go on, between, uh, you know, this process yes. of translating and, I mean, the formal process, I'm sure, as you said, informally, you've been in conversation for very long, so. You know, um, this, I mean, I think the collaboration between Anupama and me started uh, around her work and we, uh, both Tulsi and I, uh, engaged with the kind of research she was doing hmm. and uh, then around that you know a little later I was involved in anti-caste movements uh, working with young people on on the anti-caste front I started writing in Marathi on gender and caste uh, getting much more interested in Ambedkar and really reading uh, other uh, important Marathi anti-caste writers at that time. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, uh, I published uh, the, the translation of uh, We Also Made History, which was uh, a book by uh, two Dalit women who worked mm -hmm. on uh, um, Dalit women's uh, involvement in, in the Ambedkar movement. This had also started off much earlier hmm. when uh, a group that I was involved with, uh, Alochana, had held a meeting in 1996 hmm. when people were beginning to talk about Dalit women's involvement. And, uh, you know, we brought together a number of Dalit women to speak about their experiences. And then it was over the years. I mean, even this first translation took a long time. And mm -hmm. so did the R.B. Morey. Uh, it was, uh, you know, again, it was a kind of life engagement uh, right. with right. the issues which went on evolving over time. Right. It was not just an academic ex exercise in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And that really comes across, I think, in the when one reads the book. Um, so, yeah, while we're talking about this process, uh, maybe Vandana, you can tell us a little bit about the challenges of the process of translation um, and Anupama, uh, you know, cha the challenges of the editorial process, um, which will again, you know, maybe that could be a space of reflection again on the process itself. Um, 
you know, in the beginning, maybe when uh, Anupama suggested that I translate this work, uh, she was already involved in her project. Uh, I mean, coming out of her book and into the project on Dalit Bombay. And her approach, as she will talk about, was very different. I just kind of plunged into the text, so to speak. Hmm. By that time, being interested in what Ambedkar had meant to various people, I also had a background uh, in the in the communist movement, in leftist movements, going back to much earlier, when I first uh, came back to India after being in England during the, the early 1970s. So, mm. you know, when we were having intense Marxist discussions and so on in, in, in those days. Mm. So, More was a fascinating figure. Uh, mm. The very fact that he worked with Ambedkar and later on joined the Communist Party. Uh, and once I started reading the text, it is, of course, uh, you know, as we will go on to speak about the fact that uh, the actual autobiography is, very, is quite short and ends uh, quite early in uh, More's life. Yeah, uh, quite abruptly. died before he could go further. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but... Uh, you know, it was so beautifully written. It was something that was a pleasure to translate. I think that is something we can come back to later as well. Right. Anupama. Yeah, absolutely. Anupama? Yeah. Um, so I think a, a few things that, that you know, Vandana has brought up. One is um, really the question of time and temporality and politics, right? That in many ways... Um, you know, I think for me, not having been uh, just through age and also location, not having been uh, a kind of a participant in the movement, uh, the autonomous movements, whether it's, you know, the feminist movement or left politics uh, uh, in in the region. For me, um, the, the entry, I think, was very much to think about the question of the kind of life world of the interwar period. The ways in which historically this was a moment of various sorts of opening and to think about the dissonance between also that moment, that moment that opens up a possible translation between caste and class coming to the question of translation and transliteration and the different moments in the political history, both of the region and I would say in the history of uh, what we might call sort of Indian Marxism, where that question of caste and class has been posed anew apparently, you know, uh, again and again with sort of new eyes, with a new focus and so on. But this is a recurrent problem and a question, right? How is caste related to class? How do we think about Ambedkarite communism or Dalit communists like Arbi More, who have a kind of split personality, if you will, right? Whose politics are both uh, an investment in uh, anti-caste politics and caste annihilation on the one hand, Mm-hmm. But who are also thinking through what, what we might call a sort of communism of equals, right? The kind of heterodox worlds of Marxist thought, language, imagination. 
that uh, they were also confronting in the context of, of Bombay. And so, um, you know, this was this was my entry point initially uh, into the into the life of R.B. Moray. But mm-hmm. I think it also opens up a number of very interesting questions. One is this question of popular memory and the archive, right? Mm-hmm. Where is archive? And one of the things that we really did end up doing, uh, you asked about the editorial process. Mm-hmm. Um, large part of what one did in framing that introduction was to think about the relationship between popular archives, uh, family histories, archives that have no recognizable, right, which is to say state-sponsored, as it were, uh, reality or existence that aren't being supported in that way. These are archives by Ambedkarites, by Dalit activists, that they put together at enormous cost and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We drew on that archive of popular memory as well as documents. Mm-hmm. But I think also the question of the relationship between biography and history that really comes up in um, the Moray, both translation, uh, but also the autobiography and the biography. How do we relate the life? Yes, yes. Um, of the life because that life is being um, represented at least twice over, right? In right. Mori's own, as Vandana put it, sort of beautiful language, mm. really located in time, and then by the sun. So there's al- already uh, the question of representation, of uh, political subjectivity, and so on as well. So just yeah. marking a few uh, things that, you know, to me were very interesting. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's so fascinating. And I mean, that was really my next question that this work brings to light the first person narrative of an important but relatively unknown leader, unknown at a national scale, maybe within, uh, you know, within local communist circles in Maharashtra, he is well known, you can talk about that. But, um, but somebody who's so important, who was a contemporary oh, yes. and close associate of B.R. Ambedkar. So the question I wanted to ask, uh, leading from, you know, the discussion we've had so far is, uh, what's the significance of this uh, work in adding to the genealogy of Dalit writing and first person narratives of leaders who've been lost to history, right? And this is what you were both indicating uh, about, you know, these pers- uh, these archives that are available nowhere else except within the movement and Ambedkarite, uh, uh, you know, uh, lead or uh, workers and organizers and leaders who've preserved these archives at a great cost. So if you could reflect a little more about that, uh, you know, the process that you've witnessed of this archive making, if as it were. Uh- I'd also like to just say a word before Anupama goes into her whole work of, you know, um, re-assuscitating this archive, uh, which comes out in the book, of course. Uh, But, you know, when you talked about these relatively unknown people, even the earlier book I translated, Mm. I did not find a very wide readership in Marathi, even though it was a significant work. And there were a lot of... uh, Although the two women who worked on it also put in huge effort mm-hmm. and uh, faced a lot of difficulties in, in reaching the sources and so on. Um, as far as R.B. Moray was concerned, again, uh, the Marathi book did not have a very wide readership. 
mm-hmm. you know, now when I even go back even after the English translation has, has come out and some people have come to know more through this translation rather than having read the Marathi itself. Uh, it is it is a whole uh, history of of uh, how the voices have never been uh, very much in the forefront. It's something of an evolving history of more of recent times that uh, you know Dalit writings are again uh, being paid attention to, and uh, th- this was a part of our experience, I think. Uh, because we, you know, I started with the translation. I just worked through the the, the work itself. Um, as I said, uh, the autobiography is so beautifully written. Uh, I went through it without even. Uh, I came back to thinking about how it had been written much later. But uh, when one reads the second half, uh, which is the son trying to write about his father's life. Um, then you come across this, uh, you know, the various ways of looking at Marxism and and the thought of and work of Ambedkar, and it was something I was living with as well because I was working with a group which calls themselves uh, Marxvad, Fule, Ambedkarvad, you know, mm. uh, trying and the way that they were uh, conceiving these various uh, modes of thinking or various. Uh, paradigms, you can say, was very different from the way I was coming at it. And already, you know, even Anupama then, as a historian, uh, coming uh, to Ambedkar as an academic based in the US, but then, you know, the the encounter between us and also, of course, the inputs from my husband, Tulsi, who had had a different, again, a very different encounter with the history of Ambedkar and Marx uh, in Maharashtra because of his own involvement uh, with a group called the Dalit Panthers in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, there were so many cross currents really uh, and so many angles at which we were, you can say Tulsi, who was very much involved in the project as I was writing it, uh, Anupama and myself, uh, but many others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do get a sense of this being a really collaborative work. Um, so maybe we can, Anupama, you want to reflect on this process of, you know, building a genealogy uh, and, you know, this question of archives that you brought up. Sure. Um, you know, I think um, I'll, I'll pick up on something that, you know, Vandana was mentioning, that there are many different interpretations. There are many different ways of, you know, reading both the movement and then, you know, it's, it's many, many afterlives, right? But I think, you know, one of the things that one was circling around or maybe what unites all of these um, many different reading practices, let me call it, or practices of interpretation shaped by our own context, our own intellectual formations, but also a a kind of imaginative identification, right, with a certain possible politics, a world that could have been, because it is, I think, the world that the Ambedkarites were building, right, reconstructing the world, seeing it anew, Um, and what in many ways, you know, Marxism and Marxist thinking also was, was attempting. What kind of united the, the, the work, it seems to me, is the question of what did Ambedkar mean, 
right? So thinking about Ambedkar both as a real presence and a very powerful one, but to my mind also Ambedkar as an event in thought, right? So my interest uh, really was to push this question of the organic intellectual, thinking about intellectual histories from below, and uh, to make an argument, right, uh, maybe not as explicitly as I might in, in, in other writing and work, but to argue that a kind of movement history leaves unanswered the question of thought. Mm. How did system thought develop? Who are the progenitors of anti-caste thinking? Right. What are the kind of prehistories that are, in a sense, preceding the world that More comes into? And I tried to do a bit of that, I think, in the introduction as well, to think about the long histories of Fule, uh, the, the, the really broad world of anti-caste radicalism that had preceded Ambedkar and then certainly More himself, but also the kind of life world, the complex material conditions of Bombay and its environs. You spoke about uh, the Konkan Sanjukta when you introduced the project. So what were the kinds of connections, you know, the migrations, the real movement that also enabled certain kinds of um, thought crossings, right? The creation of distinctive thought space that was emerging in this period. So I think that's um, something that, you know, maybe unites the many different modes of reading, the kind of interpretive um, acts that all of us engaged in and so on. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Other, Go ahead. Um, no. And the other, I think, would, would be the, the ways in which kind of family history and the writing of a kind of family history was also entailed in this project. I mentioned, you know, uh, there is More, there is Satyendra More, both make a presence in, in the book, right? Because it's Satyendra mm. More who reflects and provides a complete accounting of mm. his father's life. The father actually stops writing about his life, Arbi More, in mm. 1924 on the very cusp of the Mahad Satyagraha, the yeah. first major revolutionary civil rights struggle mm-hmm. that brings sort of to the fore as a, as a distinctive movement leader. And then there was, you know, Subodh, the grandson, who had put together the Marathi uh, autobiography and the biography. And I had a very close collaboration, as did Vandana, with Subodh and trying to get a sense of the ways in which Subodh himself was thinking about this project and this world and a particular kind of inheritance of, of the family, right? Being a kind of red family that is also deeply Ambedkarite. And uh, that was a very light touch. Subodh was extremely open about the interpretations that we were offering, just as, you know, Vandana indicated that her own kind of really deep investment in the text, this is a beautiful translation hmm. and it's a tra- that really hews to the original and the, uh, the the kind of the linguistic air, as as Benjamin puts it, of what is being communicated in in the Marathi text, and so her entry point was through the worlds that the words opened up. Mm-hmm. For me, it was I think the broader intellectual historical context in which. Arbi More suddenly emerged as a as an unknown and underexplored figure that allowed us to really forefront this debate about caste and class in that period. If that right. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and that's so beautifully put, right? That the walls that the words opened up, and I think 
uh, the subtitle of the book is quite apt, right? The, the many worlds of R.B. More, uh, because I think it really captures the um, complexity of uh, and and you know the the richness and plenitude of R.B. More's life and its various facets. Um, so, uh, and I think you've anticipated some of the questions I had in mind, but uh, just to maybe orient the readers a little bit, I want to mention that the text is organized in three broad sections. The critical introduction that's written by you, which we've been kind of hovering around and we'll discuss more. And of course, the incomplete autobiography of R.B. More, which, as you said, stops, uh, you know, he, he stops writing uh, uh, in, uh, or, or uh, you know, the, the writing stops just before the Mahad Satyagraha. Uh, of 1924, and then the biography by his son, Satyendra More. So, um, you know, just to go back to this literary aspect of this book, the fact that it straddles these genres, the autobiography, biography, and then both the father and son come across as very self-reflexive authors with a deep sense of history and their own place within it. And in the introduction and in the translator's note, both of you reflect a little on the divergences and similarities in styles, narrative te techniques, et cetera. So I think uh, our, our, our listeners would benefit from hearing a little bit of that reflection about the differences, but also the dialogue that happens, right, between the father and son, if I'm right to say that. There's clearly a very uh, self-reflexive and intense dialogue. So a little bit about uh, those similarities, differences, uh, so unfortunately, uh, Vandana had to leave. So we'll continue the conversation with Anupama Rao. Um, and so Anupama, we were discussing about, you know, these, the, the biography, the autobiography, um, the, the texture of writing uh, of More and Satendra More, and also the dialogue that happens between the father and son. I think that's really interesting, right? The process of writing sets up, well, a one-way dialogue perhaps because, you know, it's Satendra More reflecting on his father's life. Uh, anyway, so I, I'm curious to hear your sense of the textures of difference between these two authors. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. 
That's shipstation.com with the code POD. Sure, sure. And and I, you know, I think um, Vandana would uh, be able to kind of speak to the, again, the granularity of that, of that engagement um, with the words and worlds. But I think what, what emerges is, um, you know, keep in mind, you know, uh, More is born in 1903. He dies in 1972. He's encouraged to start writing his autobiography just before he passes away. Uh, hence, you know, stopping at 1924 and, and, and that kind of, you know, abrupt stop with the autobiography, just as you're beginning to have uh, the preparations that are being made on the ground for the 27 Mahat Satyagraha. Now, the son picks up, in a sense, the father's life, and as I suggest, wants to give that life a certain place within a longer tradition of communist life writing and biography, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the son's uh, interests are rather different from that of the father, right? Now, the father is in the press of the movement. And what we see, and this is, I think, why Vandana talks about the kind of beauty of Arvi More's text, he is at some level... Um, not using the traditional categories of uh, politics when he talks about his life. I, I refer to him as, um, uh, as an urban dandy, uh, you know, someone mm -hmm, who is mm -hmm. between the kind of, you know, subaltern life worlds of, you know, the docklands, you know, uh, neighborhoods, kind of subaltern neighborhoods, working class neighborhoods, but is also coming into contact with, you know, the central command, as it were, of the Communist Party at the time, and engaging with them, uh, in many ways, translating Marxist thought through these friend circles that are happening in working class Bombay in those areas and the chawls of working class Bombay and so on. And so Mori's language reflects, I think, a kind of immediacy. It reflects um, really a kind of um, complex inhabitation of his own social world and space. Mm -hmm. Now, Satyamore, at least on the first reading, is providing for us a kind of political history of um, a, a kind of communist-inspired history, if you will, of anti-colonialism and post-colonial independence, and also inserting his father's life in that narrative. Now, what creates the problem, in a sense, for Satyendra More mm. is that the father is unrecognized. He is a Dalit Marxist. He's a Dalit communist mm. whose suffering is not recognized by the party itself. There is a, a, a kind of unspoken understanding, uh, I think, by Satyendra More that there is casteism that is mm. at the root of the invisibilization of the father's life. Right. And so there's a kind of tremendous interest, both a kind of political force and I think a, a personal investment in placing the father within standard communist histories and biographies. So that makes for, again, you talked about, you know, mixed genre, that really makes for a kind of fractured narrative. And one had to go back and reread Satyendra More to say, this is actually quite complicated, right? This text too can be read against itself. Because on its first read, it reads like any other kind of communist, you know, history of 
using borrowed terms and terminology, presenting for us a kind of, you know, standard left history and understanding mm. of uh, colonialism and the coming into being of the nation and so on. And then suddenly, you know, you're punctured, the, the narrative is punctuated by very real accounts of caste humiliation, caste mm. exclusion, and understanding of the father's enormous sacrifice, which, you know, translates to the family's own experience of uh, destitution and poverty. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's a kind of first order reflection, I suppose, um, on your question about the mixed genres or what is it that, you know, defines autobiography versus the biography? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think when you the subtitle which I found beautiful, the many words, um, and I was uh, talking about that earlier. So maybe we could just list some of the words uh, that oh, sure. Nore inhabited in uh, to your mind as a Dalit communist, or I'm calling him. You know, that's I think that yeah, he, he, you know, he's a Dalit communist organizer and leader. And then I want to move on to this question that you actually did uh, indicate uh, earlier. The the many spaces they inhabit, right? That's also part of the many lifers. So there's the metropolis of Bombay, the hinterland, which is the Konkan region. Uh, and, you know, both authors devote a lot of words to charting out these distinct specialities. And um, it the, the, the hinterland, uh, which I feel it's a bit of a disservice to use the word, but the Konkan countryside really comes alive um, and so as a cultural historian who's also interested in this intersection, uh, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm very curious to hear an intersection of caste and space and particular temporalities. I'm also uh, fascinated by, uh, by this like you are. So, yeah, maybe we can chart out which are the many worlds and then um, this, this charting out of distinct spaces that happens in both the writings. Sure. And we should probably, you know, um, combine the two, because one of the things that um, I do in the introduction, I think, is to think through the kind of embeddedness, the materiality of uh, the world that, that More comes into, right? So uh, one is, you know, you talk about the hinterland and the countryside. Well, um, anti-caste thought and the politics of anti-casteism, if we go back to uh, Jyotira Fule and the late 19th century and so on, this was actually a, a movement that uh, focused on rural areas where some of the most profound transformations happened in an everyday critique of caste and caste relations, right? Whether it was challenging the, the privileges and the hegemony of the Brahmin, um, you know, poking fun at the Brahmin as a figure of cunning, um, speaking to uh, the rural immiseration that was produced by the kind of combine of colonial capitalism as well as uh, kind of, you know, upper caste monopoly over um, education, over the uh, colonial bureaucracy and so on. And so the, the rural hinterland, as you call it, the countryside, was actually a vibrant space of politics and political organizing. And there were many connections in that region, I think partly mm. also because of the ways in which colonial capitalism in the late 19th century really reconfigures the relationship between city and country in a place like Western India. So that would be one space, but it's also a thought space mm -hmm. because this is where you have um, anti-caste thinkers sort of going around and engaging in a number of um, 
public performative uh, enactments, if you will, of anti-caste thought, mm-hmm. right? That the martial um, uh, transforming, you know, mm-hmm. the Satya Shodha uh, into a kind of pedagogical mode, mm-hmm. right, of speaking power, but doing so through song, through word, and so on, that is very much about engaging the everyday lives and practices of people. So there's a kind of performative, inactive element to this, but mm-hmm. the, the countryside actually, in, in some ways, uh, um, is both prior to and adjacent and proximate to then that second space, which is the world of urban radicalism that's mm. taking shape. Mm-hmm. And here I do want to, you know, emphasize in many ways the distinctive ways in which Dalits escaping the rural countryside and caste relations in the country, um, countryside come into the city and become in many ways sort of, you know, the first modern subjects who engage um, the urban sensorium in very particular ways. Mm-hmm. You know, this happens through their engagement with labor their proximity to colonial public works. Mm-hmm. So whether it is, you know, in the municipality and thinking about, you know, uh, the work uh, that that Dalit labor performs as labor, right, in the city, their engagement with, you know, the railways and trams and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of interesting way in which the city then, speaking to your question about the different spaces of thought, uh, the city becomes a kind of locus, a rubric, a receptacle for both Dalit aspiration, but also Dalit engagements and encounters now with other new forms of thinking. Let's call Marxism a kind of new thought mm-hmm. at that time, yeah, which it is. Um, and so now they're beginning to think through the ways in which a kind of modern organization of labor, the labor regime, and the discourses of exploitation and so forth that are emanating from those spaces can come together with a longer tradition of anti-caste thought. And I really try to think a little bit about the forms of um, what I call a kind of linguistic concreteness that's Mm -hmm. born in that encounter, speaking to uh, a focus on language and really thinking through the work of words. So this is about Mm -hmm. not just translation, but it's also about a kind of creative repurposing of terms, of images, figures of destitution and poverty and so forth, the ways in which those those um, tropes, if you will as well, are made available for um, a kind of creative um, reinvigoration, as it were, yeah. of terms, categories, and new modes of thinking. So that would be the second space, I guess. The third is actually the space of the neighborhood and the way in which we begin to see that colonial Bombay is both... Um, fixing people in certain neighborhoods, and certainly if we think through working class lives and so on, it's fixing people in neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Neighborhoods are adjacent to each other, Dalits and Muslims, working classes versus the elites and so on. But because it is a city that is experiencing as well new technologies of connection, there is the capacity to, for moving between and traversing those spaces and those boundaries, right? And that's what the city makes possible. And I think that is what colonial urbanity with all of its, uh, you know, um, limits, both, uh, you know, created by um, the refurbishing, if you will, of caste relations within the city, um, the the work of capital itself and enclaving space in Bombay Mm -hmm. and so on, 
despite those things, there is a way in which these thought worlds and imaginative spaces are also connected with each other. Mm-hmm. So I think that urban radicalism is an imaginative space and it's a utopian space. Mm-hmm. It's kind of coming in contact with the material embedded reality of mm-hmm. the neighborhood, chores, of you know, poor housing, mm-hmm. and the long histories of, of, of uh, exclusion, immiseration, destitution, mm-hmm urban locations themselves produce in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what happens to the lit life worlds and the lit lives. So this kind of complex paradoxical relationship between social emancipation and new forms of social enclaving, mm-hmm. right, I think produces a, a very interesting uh, kind of a moment speaking about, about thought. The other, I think, is also um, the kind of language, you know, what are people reading? And what are they encountering, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of this has to do with uh, the fact that you know um, Marxism as such, or Marxist thought as such, mm-hmm. is itself being transmitted in very interesting ways. It's not you know being transmitted. You know, certainly yes, there is um, there is an effort to have you know reading groups and and uh, consciousness raising you know groups and so forth, where classical Marxist you know categories, which are to my mind very um, uh, that are inflexible, right? I mean, these are these are terms that actually don't provide uh, the room and flexibility for maneuver. Are themselves being communicated, and certainly to the Brahminical left, as it were. But then there is a whole other world, a kind of fugitive world, if you will, of connections through language, through literary worlds, as well as through what we might think of as kind of you know theoretical political mm. work. And that adjacency, I want to say, between the literary and, in some sense, the 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 um, political, right? The worlds of kind of you know literary thinking mm-hmm. and political thought, and that engagement, I think, is extremely interesting. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think uh, these particular specialities. I mean, even the kind of uh, subspecialities, like you know, within. The countryside, there's there's like particular spaces like Dasgao or you know um, the port, which enables uh, a certain kind of mobility. The fact that um, the British Army recruits from that region for particular reasons. So there's like those distinct subspecialities within the countryside, as it were, and then even within uh, Bombay, as you mentioned, there's the neighborhoods, there's the mills, there's Ports. So, and I think all of them together, we see uh, in their writings how they come together in a manner of speaking to intersect with the material histories, intersect with these personal histories um, to enable the development of individual and, and as well as collective Dalit political consciousness, right? Because one of the questions I think that this book answers is why did this kind of um, Dalit consciousness developed very early on here and not elsewhere, right? That's the answer, really. To uh, that's the answer to the question, you know. To to uh, and the answer is it's it's this distinct spatial and material history intersecting. Uh, also, uh, the intersection of early education amongst the Mahars that's possible. So, uh, I, you know, I don't want to uh, give too many spoilers because it's a riveting book. Um, so I, I think now I want to talk, go back perhaps again to this relationship between the father and the son, and uh, we'll come back to caste networks in a bit. Uh, you, 
uh, I think Satyendra Mora uses the phrase, at least in Vandana's translation, the, uh, the phrase is thoughtful rebellion to describe how, uh, you know, to describe R.B. Mora's decision to join the Communist Party. Uh, and, you know, of course, when one reads the book, there is some sense of rationalization, but it's a rationalization that Satyendra Mora attributes to R.B. Mora, right? And so, you know, you've been uh, thinking about this and talking to us about this already, but uh, it will be interesting to hear that given the differences between the Ambedkarites and communists that exist to this day, um, what was this Marxist, communist, uh, Dalit utopia that Mori was imagining? Uh, at, and what was his vision for Dalit Marxist political action? Because I think that really, um, it, it, it's really utopic. That's the word that you've used. And I, I quite agree. So um, interested to hear about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of getting to the crux, uh, the the crux of uh, um, both the kind of problem, in a sense, and um, and the ways in which we kind of resolve this, right, and explain it. And uh, I think it's you know, if if we go by Morris' own account and the way it's presented to us, um, certainly the the argument is that, you know, Mori himself comes to an understanding of a broader politics of the poor, kind of poverty poor, if you will, as a kind of, you know, multitude, as a, uh, as a kind of um, emergent collectivity and so on, that he begins to kind of engage with and identify with and empathize with. But that is actually coming from his involvement with the Ambedkar movement, but also also his own experiences, right? You know, as a student, he's, you know, wandering around Daskau. He is, uh, as a very young person, he establishes a hotel where, you know, uh, all the castes can, you know, can find water, can have access to water and food near the bus stop, because this is indeed, as you mentioned, a place where um, military pensioners and Dalits who've been a part of the British army, there's a there's a conclave of them, right? And they play a very big role in uh, producing uh, new uh, foci for educating Dalit youth, so kind of mass intellectuality, but they also bring with them um, a certain kind of elite status, having been members of the army. So, so Mori sort of, you know, narrates his own life Right, creating this the space of, of kind of cross caste inclusion. Uh, he talks about his own experiences with education, and you know the education itself is interrupted by politics. So this is very interesting to think about the intellectual within and without the institution of the school. So where is mass intellectuality to be found? You know, where is politics and political awakening happening? And Mori talks about this through his own experiences of schooling. Um, and then explains his decision in 1930 to become a card-carrying member of the Communist Party as an engagement actually with Ambedkar. He says he meets Ambedkar and conveys to him the idea that, you know, he could be in a sense more efficacious as someone who is translating many of the, uh, many, the, the vision, if you will, of the Ambedkar movement and carrying it to a much broader or, you know, enacting those politics on a larger scale. And uh, it remains, you know, uh, underexplained, certainly, and um, under theorized, certainly, to ask what is it that produces that moment of decision, 
right? And, and we confronted that too, and I confronted that as well. Uh, and partly because, you know, to, to, to offer an explanation also means that one is involving oneself in a very complex, as you yourself pointed out, a very complex argument about the relationship between caste and class, but also between Ambedkarites and communists. So Ambedkar himself is, you know, uh, leads the anti-Kota movement. You know, it's a group of, you know, it's, it's a rural action, as it were, against landlordism. And he comes together with the uh, Peasant and Workers Party and really leads that movement around labor because it's also an argument about agrarian labor and caste. But there are other moments where, of course, we know that the history of the communist movement in India is one of refusing to recognize the specificity of caste or wanting to think that caste must be converted into class. So not thinking through the social conditions of caste immiseration or the long you know, histories of caste and you know, historic violence of caste um, and wanting to sort of you know, effect an easy translation, but also a kind of historical transition, if you will, into uh, class relations on the ground. So that moment really is, is a very interesting and I want to suggest an underexplored moment. And we want to leave it that way. Right, because there isn't any adequate way of explaining, you know, how that comes about, except to say that there's something about that world that More inhabits that allows him to translate between these two forms and practices, political practices. But I think I would want to make a broader theoretical argument, which I also make in the introduction, which is that heterodox Marxisms, and certainly the heterodox Marxism that we see taking shape in urban Bombay at the time, actually has its roots. The prehistory of that lies in anti-caste thought and not the other way around, right? So the challenge, you know, if you wanted me to kind of, you know, jump in and say, listen, Anu, you know, pick a side. Well, the side that I'm on is to say that anti-caste thought produces the modes of imagining, thinking, caste destitution, manual, the relationship between intellectual and manual labor, and so forth, in ways that both precede and form the kind of repertoire for heterodox Marxisms. And this would be, you know, I think akin to the way that um, people have looked at, um, let's say, um, African-American political thought, thinking about someone like, you know, Du Bois, and Du Bois's own movement into Marxism, which is also happening in sort of the interwar period uh, and leading up into World War II. Um, but that there's something about the relationship between the embeddedness, the social embeddedness of embodied exclusion, exploitation, humiliation, right? And the ways in which new, uh, you know, new political forms and formations and languages are able to both kind of predate on this and elaborate that uh, framework, uh, as it were. Right. Yeah. I can't hear you, uh, Sanjukta, at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm here. I. I just muted myself. So. Uh, you know, so that there's no background noise on my side. Uh, but yeah, this is fascinating. And again, it. You, you know, it answers to some degree this uh, conceptual question, right? This epistemological question about why Bombay was the center of this major labor movement. And I think you give a very interesting proposition that 
um, this uh, massive anti-caste network that was developing in great part actually predated and uh, was the progenitor, as it were, of the labor movement to some degree, and not the other way around. Because again, uh, there are labor movements in other cities, but then why did Bombay become such a, I mean, it's not just the existence of infrastructure like mills, et cetera, where there are workers, because that's also happening in other urban spaces like Calcutta and uh, Chennai. So uh, that's that's really fascinating. And I think I want to ask something about this, um, you know, the solidarity network between various caste groups that we see in the book, right? So one, of course, is between various so-called untouchable castes like the Mahars and the Sambars, uh, and then between touchable uh, untouchable castes and touchable backward castes who are also mentioned, uh, which in current parlance would be like, uh, you know, the emergence of a Dalit Bahujan solidarity network. Uh, what is interesting uh, to me is that upper caste groups seem absent to the extent that they appear as, uh, you know, there are individuals from upper caste who are part of the solidarity groups. They, their names are mentioned often. Uh, but what about, uh, do we know anything about the interaction between upper caste groups who were also forming caste associations? And I know this from uh, the context of Northern India, like UP. And so was there any kind of interaction between the upper caste networks and uh, anti-caste groups? Because of course the upper caste groups were entering this debate from a very different perspective. So uh, if you, you know, uh, from your scholarship or something from this book that you might know about this? Sure, sure. Um, I should begin also by saying that, you know, um, I don't want to suggest that uh, the kind of this moment of opening is not also a deeply complex and uneven moment, right? Because one of the things that, you know, one also knows, speaking of uh, broader historical scholarship and the context and so on, is the very real divide in rural areas between, for instance, you know, Marathas, dominant caste Marathas, who are themselves landlords, who have access to land and so forth. And they are the landlords. If we think about, you know, Dalits and Dalit labor as kind of agrarian waged labor um, in, in the rural um, countryside. And so those fissures, I think, do continue. Right. So we shouldn't lose sight, I think, of the very complex ways in which, you know, classes come together at certain particular moments of solidarity, of affinity and so on. But there's also really deep, deep cleavages. Right. Or you can think about, you know, the, the, the presence, the very significant presence of what I will call, you know, Muslim communists. Right. Who are also very much a part of this history. So, um, so, so, you know, so, so we should be a little careful in thinking about this merely as a moment, if I can put it that way, of kind of political possibility and opening. It's certainly that, but I think, you know, underlying that are also very deep fissures. And, um, and then, you know, to your point about sort of, you know, the upper castes and, and a kind of Brahminical leadership, yes, we certainly hear about S.V. Deshpande, there is Dange himself, who um, is, is very critical in uh, coming out of, we might say, you know, early socialism into embracing um, communist party politics and so on. Those histories themselves are quite complicated, right? So we do hear about those figures. Now, what again might be distinctive in the Maharashtra context, it seems to me, this is not a full answer to your question, is the um, power of upper caste or Brahminical social reform, 
right? So the the reformist world, you know, of an agarkar, right, uh, and and various other upper caste, you know, uh, Brahmin social reformers, right, and their relationship in thinking and rethinking the caste question. Right. At least at the level of their own everyday practice and lives, really engaging in some practice of transformation, a kind of critical thinking about, you know, their upper caste position, location. Or you could think about someone like Osambi, who's also writing at this time, who's beginning to think about the role of caste in history and caste in a certain kind of writing or rewriting of universal history. So I think you do see in Maharashtra, back to your question, you know, why does this happen here? Um, there, one should think about Brahminical social reform as also in its own way, um, quote unquote, radical, <laughs> you know, and as providing a kind of opening for other caste groups and communities to come together. Again, here, I think this is uneven. It is certainly not complete. It's fraught with all kinds of everyday practices of exclusion. I mean, the the two, you know, the two matka system that uh, Arbi Mori talks about in the Communist Party office, right? That you drink from two different water, you know, from water matkas. The fact that, you know, you continue to experience new technologies of segregation, starting with schooling. So, you know, Brahmanism itself, you might say, is morphing and reorganizing in a sense, uh, the relationship of different castes to each other at this time too. If we think that that is the broader work of colonial capital and colonial capitalism and reorganizing what caste is and is becoming as well. Uh, I don't know if that partly answers your question, but I think it's a complex question about, you know, um, affinity, but also I think deep agonism and difference. Yeah, absolutely. And here, yeah. and here I think the, the Peasant Workers Party and you know what's happening in rural areas mm-hmm. and the communist focus on industrial labor, mm-hmm. that I think should be distinguished because there is a kind of agra- the framing of the agrarian question and the kind of class question as a question of you know industrial labor and urbanity, again going back to um, standard or typical or hegemonic communist party thinking, that is also reframing the ways in which Bahujan castes and communities, OBCs, BCs, etc., and Marathas themselves, mm. who are pretty much participating in rural activism and organization are relating in some sense to uh, a kind of uh, unspoken Brahmanism <laughs> of the Communist Party. You can think about Gangadra Dikari, you can think about Esvidesh Pandey, you can think about Dange, you can mm. think about Anadive later on and the split within the Communist Party itself. But yeah, how is it that all of these guys, and they're all men, <laughs> end up uh, occupying the space of, uh, of, of uh, radical politics, if that is indeed the ways in which we want to think about uh, Marxist thought and communism itself? Right. And, uh, you know, so it's an interesting and difficult question to parse. Right. And yeah, it's a time of great churning. And I think, again, to go back to the book, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an insight, a very intimate insight into almost the, um, you know, the background uh, to, uh, to uh, and, and in that sense, this is such an important work of public history, right? Uh, because it's not just, um, it, it, you know, in some ways you can read this work as almost a archival material, right? I mean, if, but then it's also uh, important to bring that archive to the people so that they can read for themselves how 
uh, we as historians and scholars frame um, frame the narrative through material like this, right? Um, so there's, you know, it's so rich and there's so much scope for discussion, uh, but we're coming towards the end of the conversation. So I want to actually go back to Morey's personality. I feel we really spoke about his activism, even his uh, relationship with his son, uh, but, uh, I, and you you call him, of course, uh, an urban dandy, but also urban flaneur, right? He's an urban flaneur. That's what a dandy figure is really. But the interesting thing is that he's a subaltern dandy, right? And usually the dandy figure, as we know, is associated with a certain class position. Uh, anyway, so this, you know, he, when he's wandering about the streets of Bombay in the ports, that's 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 a that's that's where I got the sense of what you know this world of plenitude. It's not all about struggle, activism, but there's also nattak, there's also wandering, there's friendship, um, and to the extent that even draws the accusation that he's a mawali, right? Like he uses the word that people said that I've become a mawali, uh, and of course our association today with the mawali is through the uh, Bombay film industry, perhaps, and you know what we know uh, of contemporary Bombay. So uh, there were so many connections with when he uses the word mawali that uh, Vandana chooses to leave as it is in the uh, in the in the book. So. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just interested to, to hear about this plenitude and this joy that comes through in his writing um, and says something about his personality, because we're not just reconstructing him as a, um, you know, as a uh, organic intellectual, which he definitely is, but also as this full-fledged human being who is, um, you know, uh, in very complex circumstances, uh, finding joy and happiness. If if I'm not uh, over reading, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, you know, and I think it's precisely that that relationship between um, urban destitution and a kind of remaking of selfhood, really through the ethical project, right, of of kind of rehumanizing oneself. And I think what you see in More is precisely that the the fullness of that life, the complications of that life that are transcending everything um, or that are translating, I should say, across a number of different registers, right? One is the very real um, impact of being um, orphaned, you know, father dying, mother actually, you know, being really the, you know, having a single mother who is is laboring to, to take care of her children, uh, the complex kind of family circumstances, including of exploitation within the joint family that he's experiencing and having to live with and accommodate in some ways, right? And the way that he does that, I think, is to be both within and without that world. And education and that broader world of exposure to mass intellectuality, so-called democratic education, if you will, opens up a space for him that makes it bearable to live with the conditions of real life. And then I think the political project, the collective project of creating um, a kind of new personhood, a new humanity, then becomes the occasion for, as you say, I love that term, you know, joyful association. 
So on the ground, you kind of, you know, experience people certainly, yes, through a kind of sociology of their class and caste positions and so on. But there's a way in which he's able to also be in the moment and to say, okay, even, you know, the ritual world, which is deeply stratified, where, you know, we are completely excluded. There are those moments where we actually take the lead. We walk in the chapina. We are the ones who walk ahead. So he's got a kind of attentivity to... Um, tradition, right? And the vagaries of tradition, the contradictory consciousness, as it were, that the organic intellectual really kind of inhabits, embraces, and works with. That, I think, is what makes him really quite extraordinary. And yes, I think it is the ethical force of the politics that kind of pro propels him outside of all of the kind of, you know, apparent closures, the distinctions, the differences, the deep inequity that he's confronting, including in the party that he adopts as his home. He makes a home in that party. Much of the time from the 1930s onwards, he's off-site, as it were, because he's underground, right? As a member of the Congress party, he's underground. It's his wife, it's the child, it's Satyendra More who are sort of saying, this is what destitution feels like when the father is missing from the scene. And those, you know, sacrifices and so forth are explained in some sense through the power of that political utopianism. Right. Yeah, you know, and one doesn't want to, you know, one doesn't want to kind of, you know, uh, either fetishize that or, or, uh, you know, uh, see that merely as uh, a, a kind of, you know, utopianism that worked without thinking about the real closures, the, the kind of, you know, the sociological rifts, if you will, that underlie it. But I think it is that, and that's what the language opens up which is why, you know, Vandana again spoke about the fact that it's a kind of beautiful language. What makes it beautiful? It is, it is simple. It is everyday. It's filled with the terms of actual living human beings on the ground. Right, right. And it brings that world to life to mm -hmm. say, listen, every moment is a decision. You know, do I go sleep on a park bench today because I have nowhere to go? Do I jump into a, you know, a restaurant with my friends and eat and try to run away? And, you know, you remember what happens. They say, well, if you don't have money, we're going to take your clothes. He's literally stripped. Right, right. <laughs> There's another moment of decision. Do I study or do I become a mobly? Do I become something of a, of a kind of a, a goon figure, if you will, right? Who's hanging out with guys who are smoking bong and engaging in, in a whole series of kind of, you know, underworld <laughs> tactics of survival. Yeah. And he knows both of those worlds. He knows the worlds of, you know, the Brahmin, you know, Brahminical, you know, intellectual life worlds. And he knows that underworld, right? And he's moving between those two just as much as he's moving between, you know, Ambedkarite aspiration and politics. Absolutely. And uh, the early history of the Communist Party right. as a place that, you know, held some, uh, some uh, openings right. in place for what uh, what uh, for the new kind of politics that he's envisioning. So he's also moving in his journalism between those spaces, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Janata, Avhan, Yugantar, Mashad, you know, these are all also speaking of words, they're, they're potent, powerful words like, mm -hmm. you know, Inkelab Zindabad, I mean, which is an extraordinary global rallying cry mm -hmm. from 
time, right? And a word that now is invested with new meaning under new political and changed circumstance. Mm -hmm. But that word lives on, you know, available for rethinking, remaking, uh, new imagination. Mm -hmm. And like to, you know, think of, of More as that kind of a figure to your point as well of, you know, a whole set of what we might call pr promiscuous practices of reading mm. that perhaps that text opens up, you know, one wants to be faithful to that world and, uh, and the work and the words to the extent that, you know, one recognizes the enormous intellectual labor mm -hmm. that has gone into preserving the history and the account of this individual that we come to know, um, you know, in, in very infrequent and underexplored ways, even in the Marathi literary world, as Mandana was saying. But on the other hand, I think we also want to give ourselves some, um, some permission, mm -hmm. right, to ask what was that world and what could it have been, right? And the, it's very cinematic, right? I mean, I'm thinking of the word cinema uh, because it's so, it, it, there's, it's, a, it's a world of contrast that he inhabits, the fact that he can jump between, and, and he, call, he, he thinks of himself as a bridge, at least according to Satyendra More, between the uh, Ambedkarite movement and the communist movement, but he's a bridge in so many other ways, right? The, the high intellectual world of journalism, thinking, organizing, and, uh, and, and also the ground level organizing that he does. Um, so yeah, really, I, I, the word I have is a world of plenitude. There's so much, and the cinematic moments come from these dramatic decisions that he has to take um that you were that you were discussing and you know that that moment when he when he's in a restaurant and they try to escape without paying because they don't have much money and that's when they're like no you need to leave behind your clothes uh because you know he doesn't have money so uh, i think it would be rendered into I, I can see uh to my imagination that would make a beautiful film um, but yeah, is there a paragraph if you have the book with you that you know that you would like to read out uh, um, that stayed with you? Uh, Give me a minute. Let me think yeah, about this. Sure. Mm -hmm. This meeting is being recorded. So, so Sanjita, let me let me read in a sense to your point about um, a, a world of a kind of plenitude, right? And uh, this is from page seventy-six uh, mm -hmm. from Mori's biography, and uh, he talks about the fact that he's staying with relatives uh, in um, in the Charles and says, "Akka and my relatives were happy to see that I'd got a job. The place where I was working was a European seamen's office under the control of the navy." The office was located where the Maharashtra Strait Legislature, Legislature building stands today. From the point of view of us people, not only was the salary high, but I earned an income daily. There were lodgings with the seamen and a bar selling beer and other types of alcoholic drinks in that place. My task was to give them receipts for bed tickets and bar tickets and hand over the money collected to the office. Bed tickets were for eight annas. Supposing the sailor paid one rupee for the ticket, I had been briefed by the person in whose place I was working that if the man did not accept the eight annas I returned to him as change, I was to put the extra eight annas in my pocket instead of in the collection box. In this way, I sometimes piled up as much as 10 rupees in a single day 
or at least five rupees per day. So, you know, actually plenitude, right? Money, unexpected money. Friends of mine knew I had a daily income. This extra money is not earned through toil. It is unholy money. It's a sin to keep it with you. This is so resonant of, you know, something like the de devil and commodity fetishism, right? This is money that's not yours and must be given away. So you must spend it, Morde says. All these friends smoked beedies, ate farmer tobacco, drank spirits and toddy, and smoked hash and grass. They were the same ones who played one-stringed instruments, tambourines and drums, and sang bhajans in the night. When we had finished eating something in the restaurant, we would go and sit in a toddy bar in the Dhobi Talao or Crawford Market area. We would beat on the benches and sing kavalis. And at dinner time, we'd go home swinging our arms. For about a week, nobody at home knew that I had this daily income. And again, this speaks to the question also of somebody whose circumstances of destitution, of a kind of daily exploitation that he's both witnessed and, and participated, you know, inhabited and experienced. How does this person also affect this extraordinary generosity? And I think this question of plenitude, right? On the one hand, somebody whose uh, life world and life experiences uh, don't permit this kind of, you know, uh, um, conspicuous uh, expenditure, but we constantly see this act of generosity. I don't mind destituting myself as a chosen act, and he does that, right? He leaves his family behind and says, you guys figure out what's going on, I'm going underground. Right? The family is out on the street. They're rendered homeless. So there's this constant way in which for, for Mori as well, apparently, what he has and what he doesn't have doesn't matter so much as the contexts within which they become occasions for a certain kind of thought. Right? The practice of, of a certain sort of generosity, of pleasure, of being with people who are part of his world and giving them access to precisely excess when their entire life is about exploitation and not having enough. So this is, you know, to my mind, and there are many places like this, mm -hmm, but it's mm -hmm. that act of a kind of um, ethical generosity the kind of opening oneself to the world, come what may, daring bars, we call it, right? <laughs> uh, it's that kind of an act of political daring and a kind of ethical vulnerability that I think is very interesting in, in the More text, uh, in Arbi More's text at various points in that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think uh, you and maybe Vandana mentioned that his son writes in a more almost programmatic manner, right? And it's more like, uh, commentary, whereas uh, in R.B. Morris' voice, there's these kind of moments are, there's so many of these, and that makes it such a rich and, as Vandana said, beautiful well, text. Morris doesn't know who he's going to become, right? Yeah, I mean, I think right, of course. Speaking of temporality, yeah. the son knows the father right. and has a sense of where the father belongs in, write, in, in writing a life. Right. Now, Morris thrown into that life and therefore, the relationship between sort of, you know, labor and pleasure, the relationship between sort of space and thought, you know, there's a, there's a way in which there's a kind of intermingling of, uh, of divisions 
of the mind, if you will, you know, divisions of kind of social thought and theory and concept formation that, you know, we inherit. He doesn't know. How does, how would he know what yeah. is going of his life right. he doesn't know the reception history of, of his life of his writing but that was such a beautiful beautiful paragraph that you read out right it's I think it 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 brings in all these threads of his life that we've been uh trying to kind of uh parse out and understand and see them in all their colors um yeah um so um yeah, is there anything that actually we didn't get time to talk about and you would like to bring up? Uh, please do. Um, I think I just want to mention and press on that kind of, um, that, that troubled spot, right? Um, there were, that we've had a lot of questions of, you know, a kind of what side are you on or the choice to be made? What does it mean to call him a Dalit communist? Why not just a communist or an Ambedkarite? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why mark that, the, 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 the presence, right? The, yeah. uh, the identity presence, as it were, mm -hmm. and the political affiliation presence and to put them together. And, and it's that anachronism, actually, that I think one wants to stay with rather than resolve in any way. I've suggested to you the way that I personally might resolve that question. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, I think one would want to leave that a little bit open-ended. And that's a troubled spot because, again, as you've said and I've indicated, I think the history of what follows in terms of the, the, the real divide between Ambedkarites and communists on the ground, even if, you know, in Ambedkar's own thinking, the openings provided by, um, you know, labor universalism and universality actually allows him to kind of rethink the caste question. And I've made that argument in, in the book and elsewhere too. Um, even if that's, that's the kind of uh, moment that we want to think about, this is a very troubled point. And it is one that keeps recurring. And, and I think I just want to mark that moment. Mm -hmm. And the second, I think, is also something that goes back to something we started with, which is what are the kinds of reading practices, the moments of uh, interpretation and so forth that are adequate to a complex text like this? And a work that is both complex in itself, but whose translation itself is complex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, bringing our own um, political pasts, our political histories, our own particular ways of identifying with this figure called Arbi More, you know, the biography, the life, and so on, and how much of this is a kind of imagined, you know, um, problematic, and how much of this is really thinking through an, a forgotten or an important moment in the relationship between anti-colonial thought and the kind of left thought and, you know, heterodox Marxism and so on, right? So mm -hmm. sort of before and after Marx, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So to complicate that hyphen, right? Uh, it's right. not a hyphen, it's it's a more complicated symbol. Um, and, yeah. and I think that explains why, you know, why uh, use the phrase Dalit communist. It's not a marking of identity only, but it's also to mark the two movements uh, that were sitting uneasily, the two life worlds, right? And two histories, two larger histories. Absolutely. Mm. And, and that, I think, is, is the occasion for um, 
I would hope, and you know, one is beginning to see, as somebody said, you know, now that uh, um, the, the the left is is truly history, <laughs> we really have a return to those forgotten left histories and a real effort to think about them. And one is playing that edge, right, of a certain kind of political thought and political history, and what um, my colleague Cynthia Hartman calls critical fabulation. Hmm. That, you know, one is constantly thinking the otherwise, the what could have been, the what if. And hmm. this text really opens out onto, onto that very complex, you know, edge that um, I think one is walking now. Uh, you know, in other work, uh, it's it's harder to give yourself permission to play with this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. other kinds of ethical and intellectual demands and commitments and responsibilities, right, to what you're doing. But in this text, you know, one was able to sort of really play with that. Yeah, because, because his own narrative makes it possible. Absolutely, you know, and it's a literary question of reading. Right. It is a question words and their work and how they remake and engage worlds mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's about your thought what is the mm-hmm. systematist thought so that's a particular way in which we think about the work of words mm-hmm. so what is the relationship between analysis and description mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the relationship between the literary and the political mm-hmm. what is the relationship between caste and class you know yeah. uh, what is the relationship between um the kind of intimacy that, you know, biography provides apparent intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Always with that question presentation in mind and the kind of distanced, you know, modes uh, of, of history writing that one is also engaging and how much can one play that edge responsibly, right? Opening, up, opening it up as, a, as an unresolved question. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Yeah then something that you know should be closed or absolutely. should be answered definitively once and for all. Yeah, absolutely. So in conclusion, uh, please tell us about any other future project. We, we know that you're working on this Dalit Bombay books or if there's anything else you want to share with us. Sure. Uh, I think Dalit Bombay is, is um, slightly backgrounded or has reappeared in some sense um, with the uh, the work that I've been doing and have been sort of singularly committed to since um, 2018, certainly with the Ambedkar Initiative, mm-hmm. and the effort to really again think about Ambedkar as an event and thought, but also as somebody who has his early intellectual history here at Columbia, where I teach. And so that um, sort of initiative has really been trying to think about the many worlds of Ambedkar, if you will, just to borrow that term, and how to locate him both in his time and in ours. And so that's the kind of project where I'm beginning to really think about sort of the global histories of democratic thought, the relationship between India and the US, you know, certainly triangulated and working through empire and the British empire. But really for me, the the US and the United States is a very important kind of, you know, third term (laughs) in the way that we're thinking about our uh, kind of, you know, our, our imperial life worlds. Uh, within which Ambedkar is kind of moving. And so I think uh, many of the questions that are raised maybe in this book or that are of uh, enduring concern for me um, are happening through a project of close reading and also of kind of near and far reading of this figure and uh, really, again, playing with the question of, you know, in his time and in ours Mm -hmm. and thinking about 
this juncture as a productive one um, for, for engaging sort of that figure. And so, you know, some of the questions of sort of Dalit Bombay have to do with sort of Dalit Bombay in Harlem as much as in Bombay, right? So it's, it's mm. kind of, you know, and it's the scale and the scope of um, the concerns, I think. Okay, that's that's wonderful, and yeah, I think we'll that that merits another different conversation, right? So, Anupama, thank you so much for joining uh, me here today, and thanks to Vandana in absentia. Uh, I hope many readers read this important, rich, and thought-provoking work. Um, so, thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thanks so much, Sanjukta, and thanks, Vandana. <laughs>